Hey everybody, welcome to episode 33. I think 33, is that right? Something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, 33 of the Mountain Bike Podcast. Yeah. I'm your co-host, Jonathan Lee, with my co-host, Stephen Lewis. Hello. How's it going, man? I'm good. You're grinning. Sure. You got a gravel grin on your face. I do. It was a good weekend. Yeah, you went gravel racing, right? Yeah, I did 58 miles and my knee was amazing. Good. No pain, no nothing. Dude, yes. Yeah, so I think I'm back. So I think it's time to really start pushing it. That's awesome. That, that's always so scary when you're dealing with an injury and yeah. you're like kind of, you're trying not to think about it, but you're kind of worried all the time that it might just come back and bite you real quick. Exactly. You know, like yeah, the pain or tension that you have when you exactly. come back from, yeah, anyways. Yep. Uh, this is where we talk about mountain bikes, gravel racing stuff too, because it's kind of fun. Yeah, it's uh, kind of dirt and yeah, things. Yeah, it's good times. You can learn more about everything that we talk about here. Uh, you can follow us. You can even get some sweet stuff at mtbpodcast.com. Our top caps are pretty cool. Yeah, they are. Yeah. They're catching on, man. Take yeah. a picture with your top cap and tag us with it, by the way. I've, yes. uh, I've heard that people are picking them up. So it's good stuff. Uh, Steven, should we mention a little thing that we have brewing for the spring here? We should. Actually, we should. yeah, we should do that. Yeah, we yeah. should. Okay, so... We're planning on attending the Sedona Mountain Bike Festival. Yes. It's going to be March 2nd through 4th and obviously Sedona, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And we're planning on going there to uh, to get a huge amount of content for you guys. Yeah. So I won't be going there for just like, you know, I was recently in her bike. We'll get into that later. But that was for Trainer Road. So I'm not doing any mountain bike podcast stuff there. I'm a busy man and a company man. I'm dedicated to it, right? So, but in this case, you know, wouldn't necessarily benefit trainer road as much to be there at Sedona mountain bike festival. Cause it's all about just shredding mountain bikes, less about training and product, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Anyways. So we're looking at doing that. That said, uh, you know, you and I are not made of money, right? No, we are not. Despite what, yeah. yeah. Despite what some people accuse us of because of our bikes, we certainly are not made of money. And, uh, we both have, uh, jobs and, and, and you're going to school and we have a yeah. bunch of stuff that it's, that's calling to us. So, uh, we want to be able to make that trip because I think it would be really good content, but at the same time, we have to justify it financially. Yes. So we're looking at getting a bunch of products, more products in the store and either putting up a Patreon page or some unique content, everything else like that. So let us know your thoughts because uh, we'd like to fund that through this. So then the mountain bike podcast can pay for itself. So then we don't have to, uh, pay out of our own pockets to drive, you know, a third of the way across the country and, and go check this out. Sounds like a ton of fun. And I think above all, what we could get from this is a huge amount of content and hopefully put together an MTB podcast listener ride. Cause I know a bunch of you will be there. Yes. So if you're going to be there, just let us know, uh, shoot us an email at MTB podcast. Uh, you can or actually, you can just go to mtbpodcast.com and drop us a line there and let us know, uh, number one, what products you'd like to see for MTB podcast stuff, or if you'd like to see a Patreon page, what type of content, or if you're going to be there. Could be pretty cool stuff, man. I think it'd be awesome. Huge amount of products to cover, huge amount of riding and bikes to cover too. So we can give you guys firsthand reviews on a ton. Totally. It'd be good stuff. Uh, Anyways, uh, that gets us, I guess uh, you can leave reviews, right, Steven? Yeah. On the, on, I- on the iTunes? <laughs> on the iTunes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, leave a review there, please. Thank you so much to everyone that has. Uh, five stars if you feel so justified. If not, let us know what we can do. Yeah. Uh, Steven, uh, with that, let's get right into the abbreviated news. Yes. News team, assemble! So, first things first, we're going to skip a lot of the news. Well, because kind of a lot of news didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
it's hard <laughs> to justify that. But if you think about it, yeah. What is Interbike? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and we're going to get into this a little bit later in the business and it's just going to be a short conversation, but hopefully it gets across the state of the industry, so to speak. But yeah, not a lot of stuff was released, man. If we're honest, like impactful stuff, not yep. a lot was released. Totally. So in this case, uh, let's just move past that really quick. Mm-hmm. We're just going to talk about one main thing that main thing that happened, which was world champs. Cause we haven't even talked about that since I happened. No, we haven't. Happening in the north coast of Australia and Cairns and uh, in the XC race specifically, I want to focus on something uh, because this kind of hits home really yeah. close to you. Yeah. Did you watch any of the racing? There, I did not actually. Stuff? No. I don't know if you saw any highlights, but uh, so they've got a drop in that course, right? Um, it's nothing too bad. It's probably like a four foot drop with speed. They probably carry it around six feet, maybe down, yeah. you know, uh, it's got a landing on there. Uh, it's although if you send it a little far, it can be pretty flat. Yeah. A lot of XC riders, you know, they're pressured to hit it because it goes faster. And I think it's good that we have those elements in the courses. I really do. I think that uh, the bikes are so capable these days that we should be pushing the bikes. XC should not just be a physical test. Yeah. If that was the case, we should just make it a hill climb. Exactly. It should be part, you know, technical skills and ability. Right. yeah. Yeah. So I don't think it's the course's problem, but saw a bunch of crashes there and some pretty bad concussions. Yeah. Uh, on the men's side and the women's side, but, uh, we're going to, I'm going to, I want to talk about two from the women's side of things. First, uh, Emily Batty, she, she crashed and she assumed, I can't say for sure, but she assumed she had a concussion, uh, at least in the Instagram post that she wrote, but she still went for it just a few days later. Yeah. So she crashed in practice yep. on the drop. Yep. Gets a concussion, mm-hmm. goes and does the race mm-hmm. two days later, yeah. or three days later, whatever it was. Right. And I should clarify, I think I'm almost positive that hers was on the drop because I was so informed. However, you know, may not have happened. Regardless, she got a knock to the head that was pretty severe. Yeah. And then she went for it and then she crashed during really the race. Hard. Yeah. I don't know if you saw the gash on her leg. I did see that. I it saw that post. Pretty yeah. graphic, man. Like bad gash. We're talking to the bone deep, like yeah. really bad stuff. She had to have it stitched up. I saw that she's still having like, we're or still working with like swelling issues and, and draining and all that. Ugh, it was really bad. Mm-hmm. And then Yana Bellamoyna, the current world cup champ, she went off that drop and she just got, you know, n- not a lot of them have dropper posts. And it, this looks like a situation where she basically just got a little out of sorts and then not having a dropper post just didn't allow her to be able to maneuver on the bike well enough. She got caught up in the saddle and oh yeah, man, she door slammed so hard, like so hard and head slapped into the ground. I saw that and I thought, oh, that person's done. And it looked like Bella Moina. And then I saw her lining up and I was shocked a couple laps later, maybe even the first lap she had to pull out Yeah, and she pulled into the pits not like I'm done cognizant. She pulled into the pits, just a mess, like an emotional mess. Mm-hmm. That was scary stuff, man. And I'm, I'm just wondering what's going on there. Like what, why, why aren't team managers? I know it's world champs, but why aren't team managers pulling these athletes? Right. Yeah. I mean, is that too much to ask? I don't know. I mean, it's kind of, it's, you know, the concussion discussion of the NFL. I mean, yeah. it's a, why are they take them out? Let them rest. Don't. I mean, what's the, uh, what did we discuss after your single track six? What did we discuss the, there's like a, an increased likelihood of, you know, death Yeah. from riding and crashing again when you're in a current state of concussion. Yeah. It's extremely dangerous stuff. Yeah. And I know so many kids look up to Emily Batty and look up to Yana Bellamoyna and all this stuff. And they're probably thinking, all right, 
you know, when I get a concussion, they're going to be thinking, well, hey, Emily Batty just went for it, you know, and that's the worrisome thing. And I don't want to put that on Emily Batty or anything else. No. Like, you know what I mean? I'm not, not here to vilify her in any way. I just think that it's something that the sport should take some more ownership over, man. Of course. Uh, when you knock your head like that, you got to take some time. And I'm not saying that I'm I'm a perfect example of this. All throughout my life as a kid, I did not take much time off with concussions. We just didn't know much about them. Yeah. You know? And coming from the moto world, it was like, oh, you slapped your head. Big deal. Get back on and go. Yeah. I mean, you it just was, didn't know that. I, I raced with broken a broken arm before. Yeah. So, like, you know, it was that's just kind of how you did it. Yeah. But, man, in the XC space, I would like to see us change that. I would like to see us taking ownership over that and, you know, downhill, enduro, everything else. But with XC, you just have so much, you know, so little protection on, too. Yeah. It's pretty dangerous stuff. Yeah. I think yeah. there's a, a, an onus of responsibility that needs to be brought to the sport. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So um, go see a concussion specialist. You could find one in the region that you're at. They have, you know, they're all over. Um and a lot of them may not be a concussion specialist, but somebody that, that specializes in head injuries perhaps is the best to go see there. It's always better safe than sorry. I, you know, I took four weeks completely off of everything, did nothing after my concussion yeah. and tried to come back just on the trainer and still didn't feel quite right. Gave it another week, um, then came back on the trainer, felt okay. And then did a race, but was very cognizant and actually pulled out of that race halfway through because I yeah. didn't feel like I was okay. You really have to alter things and be okay with changing that. Uh, no matter how much money you've spent on things and everything else, it's not worth it. It's your head. Yeah. I mean, so. think about any other physical injury, like oh, look yeah. with me with my knee. If I would have just gone after it right out of the gate, I probably would have caused more damage. Yeah. Same thing goes for your brain bucket. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's tricky, right? Because it's messing with the very thing that's supposed to be recognizing any issues. Yep. It can be, it can be tough. So anyways, uh, the world champs racing was, was good though. Uh, Nino won. He went undefeated this season. It's crazy. Yeah, man. I wonder uh, I wonder what everyone anyone's going to be able to to do next year. It, the, some young guns are coming up for a while, so we'll see, but and then Aaron Gwynn did not win. Uh, no, he, did no not. he didn't. Just had a rough day. He was pretty bummed on that. Um it's, he went to Mammoth afterward and just like <laughs> he was up there during Kamikaze games and everything else, but it was like he went up there for just some like for a retreat, so to speak. Yeah, just to get <laughs> I away. could tell he was super bummed. Uh, that's what I like about that guy, man. He's he just, it's not like, sure, like everyone talks about the Porsches that he has and everything else or Porsche that he has and all that stuff. And it's Porsche. Yeah. Yeah. Porsche. And <laughs> don't get me wrong. Like, you know, he's got some, he's got nice things, but that dude does not do it for the money. And it's evident. Yeah. Like you see how, how much he cares about winning. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So. No, absolutely. And Minar got a gnarly flat. Apparently he pushed a spoke through. That's what I heard. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that, but he got like a flat and then he has, I think some type of, he had like the plastic protection rim that yeah. MV has on there. And then, uh, so he got a flat, but just rode her down and tire was completely off the rim. That plastic protection thing was completely off the rim. He's just running that guy down. That's a lot of flats this year for them. Yeah. For all the flat protection that we're getting in tires and yeah. Kush cores and Chuck Norris's and that special Chuck thing Norris's. that's supposed to stop it. You know, I mean, it is Greg Menard. So let's, let's be real here. Yeah. If anybody's looking at that and thinking because Greg Menard gets a flat on envies, I will yeah. remember you're not Greg Menard. No, <laughs> none of us are Greg Menard. No. Uh, but at the same time, man, certainly wasn't a good look. Yeah. But yeah, pushed a spoke into it. Yeah. It's crazy. That's kind of rough, man. 
Anyway, uh, with that, let's just get straight into the questions. We've got this, lots of them. D- yeah, this episode is going to be purely focused pretty much on this because we owe it to you guys because it's been a while. Totally. Uh, so, uh, Stephen, the questions. Question. It's a ridiculous question. False. Well, that's debatable. Phil. He says, first, thanks for your question about my rear suspension for Clydesdales. I sent him before the podcast about suspension and all that stuff thereafter. Good to hear, man. He says he uh, stuck with a hardtail. Uh, so he says, second, he says, more than a question. Kudos for all your help. Amazing podcast. It got me back on the bike together with Trainer Road. I lost 40 pounds and took an amazing 40 minutes off of my check loop. And I assume that's like his regular loop that he yeah. does, you know, kind of like his benchmark. Uh, he says that I used to check my training and fitness. Down from two down to two hours and twenty or down from two hours and twenty minutes to an hour and forty minutes. Solid, Solid man. Game. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I'm gonna share this with the trainer road team. They'll be really stoked. Uh but honestly, I think that all of us mountain bikers have a lot of room to gain on that. He goes into it actually. He says the idea of training at home always made me shiver with disgust, but boy, I was wrong. As an example for all the mountain bike riders out there, cannot recommend it enough. I'm on my bike six times a week, five five times indoors between kids, work, etc. And when I go outside, I'm fit quick and I enjoy it, uh, 20 times. Or, and he says, and I enjoy it 20 times more because I don't waste my time training, uh, just skills. And I'm not dying for air and have my head up soaking up the scenery. Thanks guys. Get some more goodies so we can buy them and support the show. We'll do Phil. Definitely. That's pretty awesome. He makes the good point, right? Like if you are more fit, it does make it more enjoyable. Absolutely. It really does. And it's worth the hard work. I know it sounds like lame, but it's worth the hard work. I mean, Steven, like, uh, you've, I mean, you've, you've put in time on the trainer with your knee coming back, you know, mm-hmm. you haven't been as, uh, been able to do that just because with the injury, Yeah. but man, like it's, it's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Noah, he says, Hey guys, just curious why so many bikes come with stock wheels with such narrow internal widths. I just got my 2018 SB55, which I love, by the way, and it came with DT Swiss M1900 22mm internal rims and a 2.5 DHF tire. What gives? I've heard you recommend 25mm at minimum for 2.5 tires. Why are bike companies sending out bikes with the wheel tire mismatch? Noah, this kind of sucks, but the reason is price points. To get okay. your SB55, which I'm guessing it's the carbon series, mm-hmm. to get it at a certain price point, they couldn't put a wider, lighter rim with it. You know, basically, if they were going to put a wider rim, it was going to be a lot heavier. Mm-hmm. The M1900 is already a pretty heavy and stout wheel set, mm-hmm. and it would just be heavier. And yeah. then it would make that bike ultimately just, you know, that less enjoyable or however you want to word it. So they really work with what they have to get the bike priced where they need to price it. Yep. And it comes down to on the, on the manufacturer side of the bike, uh, it comes down to price point on the manufacturer side of the components. It comes down to stock levels, forecasting and price points as well. Yeah. When they look at it. So every brand makes OEM spec stuff yeah. where basically like they look at products and the flagship is what gets the headlines. But in the end, how they're funding a lot of that is just with a, a run-of-the-mill wheel that they're going to be able to sell to all the manufacturers because they're going to build 10x those wheels compared to the higher-end ones. Yep, absolutely. As a result, they can run costs down, they can send those out, and that's what a manufacturer, a bike manufacturer wants to see Yeah, is when they spec wheels on a bike, they want to be able to do so at a decent cost so then they don't have to pass that cost on to the consumer. Absolutely. They've already got the R&D costs into the chassis and everything else. It's kind of tricky. 
So a lot of it is just, you know, volume, inventory management. It's that's where, you know, that's where manufacturers or bike manufacturers can get the good deals. Yeah. And in the end, uh, it ends up saving us money on our bikes. Exactly. And and honestly, with the 1900 specifically, that wheel hasn't changed design since 2012. Mm-hmm. So it's it's probably time for a refresh on that. That's still one of their old spring pole setups, not the ratchet assembly, um, on the hub. And it's just a, it's a fairly old design. So, you know, look for something new to come out. That's going to replace that soon. Exactly. But for now, that's what the price point hit. That's it. Yep. Uh, next one, Nikolai, he says, you mostly Jonathan are always talking about saddles being straight and not pointing down like Yaroslav has. I mostly agree. My saddle is all, although my saddle is not perfectly straight. It simply feels better when it says perfectly straight. We're talking about horizontal, parallel to the ground. Yes. We're not talking about left and right. That should just not even be a point of yeah, contention. That's not a, yeah, that's not <laughs> okay, a question. Good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He says, um, it simply feels better when angled five to seven degrees downward. What is your take on saddle position uh, in a sagged position? I assume he means like a dropped saddle. Dropped um, nose. Perhaps. Yeah. 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 He says, I will assume that you mean that it's the straight saddle is when we sit on it. So, or maybe he's talking about like that specialized dropper with the woo thing that it's got going on. I don't there. think he's talking about that. Well, let's cover that too. We'll, t- we'll cover both. Yeah. But first, uh, Steven, your thoughts on level saddles versus pointed down, pointed up. Typically I run my saddles perfectly level on all my mountain bikes, my gravel bike. It's at barely one degree of forward slope. Okay. And that's only because the fabric scoop shallow saddle, the way that it sits with my saddle at the height that it is, I needed to get that nose just slightly down so that it wasn't uh, point loading on sensitive important bits. sensitive bits. So yes. th- that's a really good point. Yeah. Your, your fabric almost does scoop up a bit. In it the does front. a little bit. Yeah. So therefore you end up running it slightly differently in yeah. terms of the angle. It totally does depend on the saddle. Yeah. I usually run a very flat saddle. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you know, you don't want that thing pointing up or down. Yeah. One thing that's interesting to me though, is I find that if people are angling their saddle more often than not, it's not due to the saddle shape and it's more down to bike fit. Yes. That's what I've noticed at least. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, you've got an excessive drop in the front. You're trying to be like an XC dude and you're running a negative 17 mil stem or something like that. Right. And it's just, and it's a huge drop. And in that case, you don't have the flexibility to be able to pull that off. So your pelvis rotates forward, putting pressure on the sensitive bits. Yeah. Now, so a lot of it comes down to flexibility. It comes down to bike fit and everything else. The one situation where I could see this being, and Yaroslav is an example of this, he rides a slightly smaller bike than maybe he should because he's really tall. Yeah. And he has a really tall saddle height. As a result, what he ends up doing is he has a big drop down to the front end of the bike only exacerbated by the fact that he runs, you know, a a big negative sim on there. Yeah. But what happens there is he's got such a negative drop that you can only get a certain amount of flexibility out of that pelvis and back and everything else. So he has to roll forward to a certain degree. Yes. That said, if you're rolling forward like that, you are using energy in your body to firmly anchor yourself in the saddle. Yeah. Because your sit bones aren't going to anchor themselves naturally in the saddle because the saddle is sloping forward. Exactly. And that's where my problem lies with it. It's just a waste of energy. Yeah. Right. So if you can manage to find a fit where you do not have to push yourself or maintain, you know, that connection, you can just sit and have that there, you know, on the saddle, your pelvis doesn't feel like it's fallen forward. If you quit pushing with your arms, if you take your arms off, you know, you're not going to fall onto your top tube type of a thing. 
If you can do that, you're going to be saving more energy. Yeah. And that's, and if you think about it from another standpoint for technical riding abilities, think of all the energy that you're using in your arms to keep you planted in that saddle as the noses dive down. What could you be doing as far as, you know, being, I guess you could say free to move about, you know, yeah. on the bike, especially on a mountain bike. Yep. You know, that's. I don't know. I just, I don't like the idea of having to use muscles to push you back when you should be using those muscles to help you ride faster. That's a great point. Really good point. And I, you know, something I hadn't really thought of specifically within that is, you know, when you do that, you end up carrying more tension through your arms Yeah, and, and then more pop. tension. Yeah. And more tension in your arms and your riding just equals sketchier handling. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. um, that's just how it goes. Yeah. So you know, I, I do think that there are, it, it could be a bike fit thing. It could be a bike fit thing. Could be a saddle shape thing. Could be a flexibility thing. It's probably almost certainly a flexibility thing to a yeah. certain degree. And a core strength could improve. Thing. Yep. And core strength too. So like for me, one of the things I noticed this weekend on the, on the gravel grinder, um, the end of it was a, about an 11 mile descent, mm. um, 2,800 feet down on a fire road that had a bunch of washboard sections. I was on 45 C Riddlers on a rigid cross Sweet. bike. Yeah. So I didn't have any suspension to soak any of that up. So I literally had to use all of my core stand off of the saddle and just float my hands over the drops yep. of the bars and just let the bike shake around violently for 11 miles so that I didn't kill myself Yeah. and I didn't get arm pump and I didn't, you know, lose control. Yeah. So that's the other thing that you have to think about is that you wouldn't be able to handle that sort of situation if you're constantly pushing your arms back to keep your sit bones planted. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Last thing to cover on this one would be dropper posts, the new woo uh, or dropper post with the woo thing, the new command post from specialized. Mm -hmm. You sit down or when you drop the saddle, it tips up. So it kind of looks like what you would see on like a slope style bike or a downhill bike. Yeah. And then when you go back up, the saddle goes to the position that you originally adjusted. I have heard mixed reviews on this thing. Okay. So the, what they say is that it gets the back of the saddle out of the way, which I can see, especially if you have your saddle tipped forward and you don't have that big of a drop, I could see that. Okay. You know, it, it would basically drop down the rear of that saddle. However, as it drops down the rear, it also raises the front. Yes. And that's where I've heard the problem exists for some folks is that the, the front is still raised. So it, and it, it just introduces a different issue. Uh, perhaps it may not be as prevalent of an issue because you're not spending time, hopefully to the front of the saddle, <laughs> but you know, hopefully you're to the back of it. Yeah. But I could see that. I could see that, you know, it does bring up something else. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? I think that that dropper post fixed a problem that doesn't really exist. <laughs> okay. Personally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're running a hundred mil drop on a seat post, yeah, it's still going to be in the way when you drop it down. But right. if you're running a 150, you're fine. You're fine. You, yeah. you can get it out of the way enough. Yeah. And at the end of the day, there's certain bikes out there that you can't run a bigger dropper on. Yeah. You know, I know some of the Marin bikes, you, you know, you physically can't fit a 150 dropper mm -hmm. depending on how tall you are. You can't fit one far enough in the seat post because in the seat tube, yeah. in the seat tube um, simply because the frame is designed in a way that it won't lower, it won't get that dropper post base into the seat tube yeah. um, far enough. Kinked seat tubes, man. Yeah. Oh. So um, <clears throat> while that sucks. Um, that's kind of the nature of the beast and that's part of bike fit. Yep. So if you want to ride a, a particular bike, that might be your limitation. And I don't think the, the woo dropper really fixes that. Yeah. I think it's just a, I don't know. Like I said, I think it fixes a problem that isn't really there. I agree. Uh, you know, I talked to the guys at Interbike at KS, uh, at Kind Shock. Yeah. And they, they got a bunch of new posts 
And they were asking me what I ran on my bike and uh, showed them a picture of my bike and told them that I run the 170, uh, mm-hmm. the, the RockShox Reverb. And they were just like, why in the world do you want that much drop? That was their question. And I said, why would I want less? And they were like, well, and I said, look at the weight. The difference is like 20 grams. Mm-hmm. And, what I'm, and we're talking like going from like a 135 up to a 170. It's a small amount, right? Yeah. Small amount. Now I can fit it in my frame and that's one, yeah, that's a, a perk that I have. And a lot of bikes, you simply can't fit it in the frame yeah. because of a bent seat tube, seat tube or mm-hmm. some type of interruption there. But I said, why would I want less? And then I started talking to him about it. I said, here's the deal. Like I don't have a bad issue on my ASR because I have a low seat tube, really low seat tube height, right? Yeah. So I have a whole bunch of seat posts up there though, that I can get out of the way. So if I have that, I might as well drop it all the way. It's, I'm going to put a dropper post on there. I'm going to have more weight. I might as well drop more. And it does help. I swear it helps. It, it makes it easier to handle. Okay. Makes the thing. Now you, you, you'll notice on downhill bikes, they don't have the, the seat dropped all the way. They still have some height on it. So mm-hmm. then they can control it with their knees. Yes. And this puts that saddle right at my knees on this bike. Yeah. So right where I would want it. And it, that's probably the ideal spot for where you'd want to go. Now, think about it, though, with certain bikes, you know, you have a tall seat tube. And if you have that tall seat tube, you can't get away with a super tall dropper. No, a 150 is a big dropper on a bike with a taller yeah. head tube to seat tube. I'm sorry, top tube to seat tube yeah. junction. For me, though, ideally, how, whatever seat post is sticking up above that frame, unless the frame is super wonky, I want that drop. Yeah. That's the drop I want. Yeah. I want to get rid of that seat post up there. Okay. It just helps, right? It makes sense. So, but anyways, after talking to him about it, they're like, yeah, actually, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of wanted to go like, how, how out of tune? Come on, guys, let's get in tune, you know? Um, but their their droppers look, uh, that carbon one is sweet. I've got my eye on it, by the way. It is. The um, the Chad 20- Timmerman here yes. at the Trainer Road, his new Canyon came with that seat post. <laughs> sweet. It's light. That seat post with the carbon railed saddle yeah. is lighter than a RockShock Reverb yeah. of the same Just drop. the seat post. Yeah, just the seat post. Yeah. His new KS11 Tegra carbon yeah. and saddle saddle yeah. is lighter. It's crazy. Pretty awesome. So yeah. I'm going to be switching over to that eventually. I just hate their levers. Yes. They which, need to improve their levers or just put a wolf tooth on it. Yeah. And, and you can do that. Yep. You can get different ones. You can get a wolf tooth. You might even be able to put something like from like a specialized command post on there. I don't know. Um, if you did that, cause their lever's awesome. The it lever is. that they have is basically a SRAM shifter. Okay. So, and it, the nice part is it just mates right up to matchmakers. If you're running SRAM brakes, yeah. I don't know. We talk about SRAM brakes a lot, but, uh, if you're running that, then you can just mount them right up, which is pretty sweet. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. Uh, okay. We got, we kind of got kind of deep okay. in that one. All right. This next one is from big wheeler cap peeler, <laughs> whatever that means. I'm not sure. He's peeling caps. Yeah, yo. Indeed. He's from the streets. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Cause that's the type of clientele I'm sure that we have here. You know, yeah. our audience is a lot of thugs. Uh, yeah. anyways, he says, dudes, your podcast is so good that I am genuinely amped to get into the car and drive to work and, le- and legitimately stoked to walk the dog because I get to listen to your podcast uninterrupted. <laughs> nice. That's good. awesome. Yeah. He says almost to the level of pre-ride stoke. Keep up the awesome work, keep the content coming and never quit. We have no plans of doing that. So, uh, no plans of quitting, I should say, Yeah, <laughs> but we plan to continue. Yeah. He says your depth of knowledge on topics ranging from training and nutrition to the scientific merits of Kashima versus DLC coatings to decal color schemes is mind blowing. The episode on suspension kinematics is so good. I literally listened to it slack jawed. I just have two questions. Number one, where can I find pictures of the project Aurora bike? 
Uh, you can find them on our Instagram and mm. Facebook pages. You can find them on my personal Instagram and so, Jonathan's actually. Jonathan has posted pictures. Uh-huh. So. Oh, it's beautiful. I yeah. have to. It's a uh, MTB podcast is the that's ours us on Instagram. Then dogs, bikes, and cars. Yep, is Stephen on Instagram, and I am Lee Jonathan underscore on Instagram. So. Yeah. Also, you can just find it all over Instagram because that thing gets reposted like once a day by like all of these like repost engines. It does. People love it. Yep. (laughs) So yeah, it's an absolutely beautiful bike. Uh, He said, when I Googled Project Aurora, all I found was crazy information on a secret black budget Mach 5 plus military jet successor to the SR-71. Yep. Indeed you did. You did. Aptly named. He says, can you please comment on the design, kinematics, and ride qualities of the Nolly 4x4, Banshee KS-Link, and Canfield Balance Formula suspension designs, and if you have time, your impressions of them compared to mainstream designs such as DW-Link, VPP, Horse Link, etc. He says, P.S., I also kind of hate you because I never once gave any thought whatsoever to how my black dropper post stanchion doesn't match the Kashima on my Fox 36 stanchions, and now it bothers me. As it should. (laughs) As it should. (laughs) Grave problem right there. Serious error. Uh, just joking. Uh, yeah. It's not too big of a deal, uh, but glad we could introduce a complex into you. Okay. I went into these bikes a bit. Now, first of all, I just want to credit Andre XTR, A-N-D-R-E-X-T-R. On YouTube. Yep. That guy breaks down the kinematics of a ton of bikes. He's a super smart dude. And he actually does this by building models so then he can run the math properly. Yep. That's how he gets these numbers. Uh, I don't know. I don't share any of the numbers here from the, on these bikes, but I did research there. I also did a, I, I talked to a few people that I know that have one of these bikes, talked to them, looked all over forums to try to get contextual understanding of what this means when they're on the trail. So I kind of, I put all that together for you. So Nolly four by four, uh, it's a progressive, but very active design. Active means the bike is going to be, uh, to readily travel through its stroke. Uh, that initial part of the stroke, especially. Yes. It'll be a little bouncy, so to speak. Right. Um, It'll be less stable when pedaling, but it will be initially plush when you're going down. This type of thing is going to be best for shredding. So I'm thinking if you're running like bike park trails, you kind of want a bike like this. Yes. This is going to be more playful. Yep. Uh, It's going to soak up small chatter a little easier. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of that is because it doesn't have as much ANSI squat as something like the Banshee KS link, which is going to be more linear. Mm-hmm. It has a good amount of anti-squat in it, so it's going to give you a stable platform, but you'll feel that small chatter a little more. It'll have less initial play to it, less uh, less um, excitement to the ride right off the bat, right? So if you're going to do all-around riding, something like this might be a little better uh, or something like that for climbing. But that said, these, you know, neither of those bikes are pretty particularly light. So if you're looking for something with climbing, you might be better looking for something else, yeah. which we'll get into in a bit. Then the Canfield Balance. I feel like Canfield Bikes is probably the most underappreciated brand That's, out there. I agree. Um, one of, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think it's hard because they're in this world of, has Canfield even released any of their carbon stuff yet to the uh, public? Yeah. So, I mean, then I, I think that they, they had the hardtail. I think the EPO was okay, carbon. So and then I think the only, they're working on. They're working on them. Yeah, yeah. But in the world of everybody being carbon now to be an aluminum bike manufacturer is Tough. kind of a faux pas. Like yep. it's not, you know, and that that's speaking nothing to Canfield specifically, right? but just in general, that's, that's the, the perception, perception totally. out in the world. Yeah. So, and, and, and let's just clear this up so we don't get anybody upset or anything. There are totally, there are merits to aluminum and, absolutely. and, and uh, you can make an aluminum bike extremely light. 
You can do all of these things. So, so we get that. It's just uh, carbon manufacturing usually. And, and really, when you come down to it, carbon is a better material to use because you can manipulate that chassis to behave in particular ways with more detail. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so sorry, continue. No. So uh, you just have an uphill battle with a brand like Canfield right from the get-go because like, oh, it's aluminum. Mm-hmm. I can get a Santa Cruz for the same price that's already carbon. Yeah. But Canfield's very, uh, the Canfield brothers, they do a really good job of engineering bikes on paper that also shred on the mountain. Absolutely. So the, the balance, they call it the balance because they feel like they've found the Zen point of, of suspension. So basically what they, they found is that, or I should say, as you travel through the suspension, usually you transfer that, that like moment, I guess what you want to call it like the moment of inertia. I'm not sure what you would call it, but it's basically like the hinge point. If you were the virtual hinge point of the suspension, it, it actually transfers. If you were to like draw like a center for where that frame point, that the rear axle path is hinging around. Yeah. Usually that moves and that moves forward. As That's why they call the it a virtual travel. pivot point. Yep. And it usually moves forward. And there are some issues with that. Okay. Um, usually that a lot of designs like that, that, that'll just cause a lot of pedal kickback. It can cause that as we know with VPP bikes, they tend mm-hmm. to have a good amount of that. Um, and it can cause some other issues. You also get inconsistent feel as you travel through the, through the stroke. Cause you're basically changing the shape that the bike is making there. Yeah. Now Canfield has found a way with their recent links or with their, the balance with the designs and everything else. It basically maintains the same exact position, no matter where you're at in the stroke, which is an interesting thing to feel on a bike. Yeah. You can actually tell when you're on a bike that does something like that. So it's basically extremely consistent. Yeah. You won't feel like the brake or the, the bike behaves differently in different portions of the stroke. Of yeah. the suspension. It doesn't mean it's going to blow through the suspension because it's just a slightly progressive design, very slightly progressive. Mm-hmm. So that means if you just pair it with the right shock and, and or, you know, shocks are progressive by nature to a certain degree, but some more so than others. Yeah. Um, but if you pair them with that, then, you know, a linear design is just fine like that, a relatively linear. Yeah. So it, it's still, obviously, it's not like it just blows through the stroke consistently, but how the bike will behave to how it hits a bump when it's zero percent through his travel or more it's it's going to be the same exactly and that's that's actually going to help you like you said the the consistency of feel is going to be there so tuning a shock for that suspension is a lot easier than a more progressive design or a, you know any sort of virtual pivot point style dw link switch yes. infinity any of that yeah and the cool thing that i like about this too is that no matter what sag you're running within reason uh, you're going to get a bike that behaves the same too. Absolutely. Uh, because certain bikes, if you, you know, you don't weigh much and you're sitting up at the top of the stroke, it may actually have like pronounced, you know, a pronounced increase in anti-squat properties. But if you were to sag a little lower, that might go away. So you might get a really, you know, an unstable pedaling platform. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. So, but this one is consistent. Totally. So the balance is good with that. Um, it's, it's really kind of like a, it's, it's, I guess a quiver in, in that sense, a quiver suspension design, so to speak, and that it's going to do everything pretty well. So I, I personally would probably go for the Canfield out of all three of these. Uh, I, I also just like the Canfield, uh, you know, the mission that they're on there to create bikes that are like scientifically good. You know, it's pretty cool. So I dig it. Good. Yeah. You, you, Steven? I would actually agree with that. Yeah, cool. I've always had a soft spot for Nolly bikes, but at the same time, I'm sorry, the Canfield brothers. 
They yeah. do some good work. They do, man. They do. Yeah. Okay, next one is from Jeff Bike Like Mike. He says, hey guys, love the podcast. Easy five stars. I got a couple of questions for you. I'm going to put my XE hardtail on the trainer since I ride my full suspension all the time now, but I don't want to get it or don't know what tire to get. Can you guys recommend a trainer tire for a 27.5 inch 19 millimeter internal width rim? Also, if I want a cross bike that isn't going to break the bank for fun, riding, commuting, weekend, fun races, what should I get? Um, First off, the you actually asked about the Oh, did the, the slick tire, the, yeah, the, the WTB thick slick, that's yeah. actually one tire. Yeah. The other one, um, surface can, one, one really quick. Oh. You can get that thick slick in a 27.5, 1.95. Yeah. And that, that'll, it's 36 bucks. Yeah. So Darn cheap. And there's also, um, from surface S E R F A S. Mm-hmm. They have a couple different tires, um, that will, uh, work perfectly. And they're like a 27.5 by 1.5 and those will actually work really well. Yep. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of options out there. Just there get are. some sort of slick, especially on the, you know, now with WTB doing the 650 B road stuff, mm-hmm. there's options out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There absolutely are. Now, if he wants to get a cross bike that isn't going to break the bank for fun, riding, commuting weekend, fun races, what should he get? Cannondale's Cat X, man. And, and that one's pretty cheap, right? That one's very cheap. There's, you know, plenty of versions from Tiagra parts groups all the way through to, I mean, you can get Durace DI2. Yeah. So, um, well, actually on the, on the Cadex, I think they only go up to Ultegra, but, that um, would make but sense. they're there, you can get them under a thousand bucks. They're great bikes. Aluminum um, frame. Aluminum frame, carbon fork, you know, really good all disc brake models. Yeah. So they're, they're all good bikes. I like the, the Cadex. My pro tip is to look on eBay Mm-hmm. or, you know, bike on the, you know, used forums, whatever it may be around January, February, and you will find a massive amount of bikes that are for sale because cross season is over. Joe Rody uh, or Jerry road. I should say, we'll mm-hmm. call him Jerry road. Uh, Jerry road thought that he would rip into cross season and, and send it. And he found out that things were hard. So, and he wants to sell it. That's really common. And you can find cross bikes. No joke. Uh, it's like, look for like a, there's so many specialized crux bikes out there. They're aluminum. That, that's a good bike. It's, it's certainly not, it's not as good as Steven super X. Don't get me wrong, but it's, it's a good bike mm-hmm. and you can find aluminum ones all day. There are disc brakes all day for 600 bucks crazy. They're so cheap. So you can find them used on there for really cheap. That's what I would do. Um, check that out. It's a, it's a good, good option, but you'd have to wait a bit. Uh, the, the season is key. If you try to find it at like late summer, you're going to pay too much. Yeah. Cause that's the season. Exactly. But if you pay for it after, then you're set. Luke says, Hey guys, thanks for the great podcast. Just interested in your thoughts regarding upgrading cranks from say XT to race fakes or race face next. A lot has spoken about rotational weight and I feel this upgrade is underestimated. Cheers. Luke. First thing I'm going to tell you, cranks are not rotating mass. Why do you say that? Steven, you're not spinning them fast enough to create any, um, sizable differences. Mm. Um, it's going to be, and it's sprung. It's, it's sprung non-rotating mass. So really it's the same as any other dead weight on the bike itself. So theoretically you're still spinning it. Well, of course, but you're not spinning it up at high, high enough speed to create what they call translational velocity or inertia. So you actually don't have the rotational mass effect that you would from like wheels and tires. Let me just push my glasses up on my nose here. Okay. The tape on the bridge. Uh, aren't your feet also at the outside of those cranks? Therefore, it's not like you're, you're turning something that's putting more leverage on there. It's not like you have weight extending away from it. The leverage is coming 
coming from there. Yeah. yeah. Although so. you bring up a good point, right? I mean, a lot of people probably don't think of that. So good on you, Luke. Yeah. I mean, of it. the thing is, you know, going from a set of XTs, which weigh close to 800 grams to a set of race face next SLs, which weigh 408 grams. Yeah. That's a big difference. It that's is. almost three quarters of a pound right there. It is. So you are going to create a lot of, you know, a lot lighter of a bike by changing cranks. What I like about changing cranks are a few things. Number one, I like the going, I, when I upgrade cranks, I do that for stiffness. Okay. I want cranks that feel very stiff. Not, okay. And I've found a lot of like, if you have holograms, those are aluminum, they're very strong. Mm-hmm. And I know XTRs are probably great, but I've found, uh, you know, I've always switched over from like standard aluminum ones up to some carbon ones. And I feel a massive difference in stiffness. Yeah. Not when I'm pedaling necessarily, but when I'm landing on stuff and when I'm going through hard stuff like that. Yeah. So that's where I notice it. Uh, the other thing that I like is aesthetics. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. They just look cleaner. Usually they don't have any strange shape to them. Like I'm not a fan of the look of the XTR cranks. They're no. just overly done. I don't like the spiders. I don't like too much to yeah. them. You know, it's just like a lot, a lot's going on over there. I prefer bad. like a direct mount chain ring on yeah. either like my hologram SIs that are on my Those super so X clean or, you know, even to a lesser degree, the XO one. Um, yeah. Uh, wait, I've got what's on my Jekyll? You got they're descendant carbons, so I they're like a little bit, yeah, they're a the little bit heavier thing. than an different XO. stickers. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, it, it just something about a direct mount chainring looks so much better than anything mm. with a spider. And beyond that, the size of the chainring you can use. Yeah, you know, one hundred four uh, BCD or one hundred four mm-hmm. bolt pattern. You're limited down to a, you know, sometimes I think 32 tooth is the smallest you can go on those, Yeah, which sucks. That's, you know, for certain people, it's not good. So I like direct mount chain rings because then you can go down to 26 and 28 tooth. Yep. Yeah. It's the way to go. Yep. Uh, so, uh, yeah. And also I really like the look of the race face next to cells. That's a They're really clean. Thing. Yeah. Really clean looking. Clinics. Yep. So, uh, from Nick, tell me, uh, let me see <clears throat> Nick, tell me to buy a Yeti. That's his last name. Yeah. So that's what he says. He I says, think that's Greek. Yeah. Yes, indeed it is. He says, hello. Thanks for the great podcast. Two questions. First, I lost my hat recently and I'm now in the market for a new one. Any plans to release a hat? I think your logo would look great on one. We should do hats. We should do hats. They're going to become with like pre-bent bills. Yes. No, we're not, flat we're not flat biller guys. No, we may offer a flat bill option, but if we do, please wear it backwards. I don't like, you know, I'm not a fan of the flat bills forward look. Fair. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I, I have a weird shoebox pinhead. It's Maybe true. That's why. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Second, is it actually possible to have a perfect bike fit or will something always be sore when you push yourself? I have a history of lower back and knee problems. And after a lot of experimentation, I've finally gotten my bike set up to the point where I can ride regularly without agitating those. However, now my wrist gets sore so far, just to the point of mild discomfort, which I can live with. I'm worried. I'm worried that if I try to make further fit adjustments, I'll just start hurting somewhere else instead. So is it actually possible to have a perfect fit or will there, will there always be a weakest link that gets sore? I've experimented with adjusting my front suspension and that helped, but not completely without sacrificing my bike's handling. If it's relevant, I'm five, six, about 150 pounds and ride a 2016 Trek fuel EX nine, 9.8 29er. Man, that is a mouthful of a bike right there. Yeah. I don't race. I tend to ride one and a half to three hours, four to six times a week. I mostly ride on rolling single track, not downhill stuff. I think that, so, um, I'm going to adjust your question if, if I may, uh, Nick, um, hopefully that's not go, going over the top. I think that you are, um, perhaps you're lending too much credence on bike fit and not enough on, uh, just general fitness or, or flexibility or strength. Absolutely. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. There is always going to be some soreness 
Mm-hmm. You have to build muscle. You have to, you know, if you're, if you've got it to the point where your lower back and knee is fine now, but you're having, you know, wrist discomfort, mm-hmm. then chances are your core strength isn't up yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Um, the perfect bike fit doesn't mean you're not going to feel sore on a bike. Yeah. Bottom line, there's right. other things at play. And let's like define perfect bike fit. Maybe the perfect bike fit is the one that allows you to perform the best and you're okay with sacrificing comfort because exactly. it allows you to perform better. Like look at triathlon, right? Yeah. It's the worst position ever on a bike. Oh yeah. It's not comfortable or look at uh, like, um, geez, I mean, some of the top time trialists in the world, like they have some very aggressive positions. They've managed to be able to put out power in that position, but it's more aerodynamic that way or yeah. whatever else. And you know, it's not necessarily the most comfortable. So the perfect bike fit is a somewhat subjective matter. It depends on the individual. Absolutely. And as far as like pain though, I mean, your bike fit should not be causing undue pain unless you are willing to sacrifice that and you've adjusted your bike intentionally. So yeah, otherwise it shouldn't be causing pain. And in that case, if you have pain, like in wrists, like joint pain, that sort of a thing, like wrists or shoulders, stuff like that. I see a lot of neck and like neck pain, headaches and shoulder, like discomfort because of a lack of core strength Yep. because you basically are putting all of that stress on the connective tissue around those regions that have the pain or that are, that are manifesting pain rather than using the strength in your body to be able to hold yourself in position. Exactly. So, um, I see that a lot, but, uh, that's, I mean, so yeah, you'll always, but you'll always have some sort of discomfort because riding a bicycle isn't sitting on a couch. Like, um, but at the same time, it shouldn't be undue discomfort. You should still be able to enjoy your rides. Absolutely. You know, um, so it's, it's all about finding a compromise. And I've found that tweaking things just the little by little and kind of, you, it's easy to get down a rabbit hole, but make sure that you have a baseline that's, that's backed up, uh, go to competitive cyclists. They have a bike fit calculator that'll honestly will get you in a decent spot. Yeah. If you're, we're talking about XC stuff, uh, we're talking about enduro and everything else. It's a little tougher, but yeah. Uh, from there you can, you can decide. So where oh. you need to adjust things. Oh, this one's from the golden shred pony. I like those. The famed golden shred pony. Yeah. Yes. I don't know. Uh, yeah. He says, great podcast guys. I'm in the process of adding a fat bike to my quiver. I'm excited about it, but notice that you guys give that community a hard time. I was just curious what the stereotype is. And they're this, just terrible humans. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I think, yeah, that was, that was kidding people. Yeah. Um, this is not swaying my decision. I just want to know the joke too. He says, again, great stuff here. I'm always impatiently waiting for the next episode. Oh, he's probably very impatient because we kept him waiting for too long. We did. That's okay. Uh, Golden Tread Pony, the the fat bike thing is, once again, this is all in jest. Let's just cover this first. Fat bikes are fat bikes are great. Yes. And I think that fat bikes totally have their purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think they can be a ton of fun. I think they are also un, um, they're less intimidating in a lot of ways to a lot of new people. They feel like they can balance more. It's a more comfortable ride. Way better traction. Yep. More options for riding. You don't have to worry about bogging down in sand. You've got, there's so many pluses to, and hey, there's no pun intended there actually. that was good. But there there are no, there there are so many pluses to a fat bike. There are. I just find, for me, fat bikes, you have to spend a lot of money to get one that's one light, two nimble, three really fun to ride. If you want to go do it on the cheap, you're going to end up having a bike that weighs 38 pounds and isn't the most fun to ride. Yeah. That's all. Let me tell you a story about fat bikes. Story time. So my, our CEO and uh, my good friend, uh, Nate Pearson from mm-hmm. trainer road, we, he was getting into mountain biking coming from the triathlon side of things. Right. So, yeah. so in your mind, picture a person that's like, you know, the typical triathlete that that's, that's hesitant 
about their bike handling skills. He's six foot 13, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's precise. Yeah. (laughs) No, he's six, six, right? Six, six. Yeah. So really tall, lanky dude. Yes. Um, but, but, uh, so he's the typical triathlete in the sense that he doesn't have the bike skills that, or he's, he isn't confident in his bike handling skills and hasn't worked on developing them. Yeah. So we got a fat bike and, you know, it makes sense. Like it was less intimidating and he could have more traction, which was honestly really helpful for him at first. Absolutely. That said, we were riding a short little section of trail that had just a bunch of little baby heads. It wasn't like a rock garden. I guess you could call it that, but it was like a small rock garden in the sense that it was just a bunch of little rocks. It was like a bunch of little turnips sticking it, out of the ground. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. We're talking like, uh, you know, something that's like, uh, anywhere from fist size to head sized. Right. Okay. And so it's, it, you know, it. On you a fat can, bike, he shouldn't have even felt it. Right. Theoretically. Yeah. But just wait. So I, you know, on my ASR went right through it. Ripped on through, no problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was on his fat bike, and when he went through there, I, I heard, and there is a road right by there, a dirt road, and I thought that it was like an old, like, straight-body Chevy with, like, a tool box in the back or something. Do you know. have, like, 40 PSI in the tires? <laughs> I don't know, because <laughs> that thing started making a noise that sounded like um, sounded like in Home Alone. When he says that's the sound of a tool chest coming down the stairs, <laughs> remember that? <laughs> Pretty much, <yep. laughs> Basically, this is what it sounded like. I looked back. His bike had reached like a point of resonance due to the tires because it had a fork, not not rear suspension. His bike was bucking uncontrollably, and he was just a very, very terrified passenger. (laughs) So it was like bouncing on the front and then catching air, then landing on the back, then catching air, landing on the front. And it was getting worse. And it like reached this point where it was like- So it had this really weird oscillation to it from the harmonics of hitting all those rocks. It was just like locked in and it wouldn't get out of its pattern. And then eventually I saw him like a bull rider, just like let go of the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Nate, we're not laughing at you. No, no. No, we are. We are. We definitely are. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) The experience was fun. And and Nate laughs about it now. I've heard him laugh about it, but- um, that's a downside with fat bikes is the fact that you're dealing with huge volume tires. And remember that is not suspension Yeah. Uh, in the sense of modern suspension. Sure, There's no damping effects to exactly. it at all. So what they would call a simple harmonic motion doesn't get damped out. It just no. keeps going. And it, sometimes they grow. Yeah. He hit like the perfect mixture of, of like rocks. He was making contact perfectly that it was just getting more and more out of control. Crazy. So, uh, so and look, like uh, a lot of people that tend to be more counterculture in the mountain bike world, like embrace fat bikes, right? Yeah. Because it's different and, and, uh, they're, they're a little ugly, right? They're not like, and they're usually not fancy carbon. Either they're very they make brash. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, and those people tend to be an easy target when you're talking about social commentary, right? Absolutely. That said, you know, we, if there's anything that we, that we say, we have said or say about fat bike stuff, know that it's just purely social commentary and it's not any sort of like bias or anything that's personally held on our ends. Yeah. We, it's it's kind of like when we make fun of Santa Cruz bros, same thing. Yeah. Same thing. Um, yeah. in fact, I, I met, uh, the, I, I was almost a little nervous. Uh, I shook his hand, but I believe that he was the. I believe that he was the marketing manager for Santa Cruz. I met him up at North star. I can't remember his name. Sorry. Um, but he, he said, uh, when I, when I shook his hand, he was like, and, uh, I was introduced as the guy that hosts the MTV podcast. He's like, Oh, good to meet you. You're that guy. So yeah. So I think that they (laughs) know about us, but like the Santa Cruz bros, they make awesome bikes. And, and honestly, they have like a really tight culture around their brand, just like, like Yeti with the Yeti tribe, a super tight culture. Right. Yeah. I think that's cool. And like the bikes identify like that and fat bikes kind of have their own culture. They do. Like you can, if you buy a fat bike and you see another guy with a fat bike, you're in a brotherhood, so to speak. And that's kind of cool. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, Yeti has really cultivated that with the tribe and, and, and 
done a lot of hard work over the years to make sure that they are inclusive with that. And, um, I think that that's something that's kind of naturally happened with fat bikes. And I think that's cool. So yeah, yeah you know, the stigma aside, I, hopefully that gives you an, an idea of what it's like, you know, they tend to assimilate with, you know, carrying flasks of whiskey and, and, uh, I don't know, bacon hand ups and, and, or bacon, lots of talk about bacon, those sort of just things. Just bacon in general. Just bacon, bacon. hand ups is, is yeah, cross only. Oh you know, yeah. Bacon hand ups yeah. would be cross only. Remember bacon saves. Yes, it does. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of where we get with that. Speaking of tribes and all of that, did you hear that Yeti is doing a, the first ever Betty specific yes. tribe gathering in New Zealand? Pretty freaking cool. Like that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Speaking about cultivation. That's women it. on bikes, man. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. It's really cool, man. Yeah. And, and yeah, I'm always a little hesitant to, to, you know, we've, especially like in the, in the beginning, because we got so many questions about Yetis and we were both building up Yetis at the time, yeah. you know, like everybody was like, you know, or I shouldn't say everybody, but people have told us like you spoke too much about Yeti. So yeah. Like professional mouth Neil. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good friend of the podcast. Yeah, Neil. So we, we try to, we try to tone it down as much as possible, but yeah, let's actually, I mean, let's give them credit, man. Yeah, Who that's actually putting really together cool. a women's only tribe gathering where you can, everybody that's bought a Yeti, that's a female gets an invite to this awesome event where they have guided tours, where they have coaches there to help with all different things. They have classes on bike maintenance. They have all this stuff. Yeah. They provide awesome meals. It's like a, it's, it's like the best all expenses or I should say all inclusive vacation you could get. Yeah. Right. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, Giant and Trek both have done women's clinics like that. Right. Um, Which is kind of like the Yeti, like the Vita or Vita series that they have and everything else. Yeah, exactly. But it's not like a tribe gathering. That's a different deal. Totally. Pretty awesome. Yep. So, uh, Andrew, he says, what are your thoughts on helmets with removable chin bars? In Western North Carolina, where I do a good amount of riding, there are some crazy technical and steep descents with big drops that I'd feel safer and more confident with a full face. Unfortunately, to get to these descents, there's often five to six miles of service road climbing and hike a bike sections in which an open face helmet would be more comfortable. The removable chin bar helmets look like a great solution, but are they too good to be true? If not, is there a model y'all would recommend? I've been looking at the Leah DBX 3.0 Enduro V2. Thanks. Um, you know, I think... They do offer a certain amount of protection. Absolutely. I think there are certain benefits to them. They're not downhill helmets at the end of the day. They aren't. They just released, I think it was, was it Bell or Giro? I can't remember. Just released the new yeah. downhill rated, uh-huh. the ASTM rated um, removable chin bar helmet. It's kind of heavy. It's kind of bulky, but that's a good option. I think Bell's Super 3R or like you had mentioned, you know, one of the, the Leas. Giro Switchblade. Or the, the, the Giro Switchblade, um, it's a little bit more cumbersome to work with it as is. far as getting the, the chin bar on and off. Yeah. The Super 2R and now Super 3R, um, I think are a little bit easier. Can we comment on aesthetics really quick? They're ugly. Because the Leet and the Super 2R yeah. are what I consider to be very ugly helmets. Uh, visors are super short and, and then the chin bar is super long. It makes you look like a dung beetle or something. Yeah, the new uh, the dung. That's a random. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, (laughs) all right. I'm just saying they have that long, you know, chin up front, and then you know the short stuff on top. True. It looks weird, and I also Jiminy Cricket's shoes. Yeah, yes, exactly. (laughs) And and let's remember how important looks are. Um, I know we're talking about helmets, uh, Mm -hmm. so I mean the important thing is function. Yeah. I I just can't get behind those ones though as much. The new Bell looks pretty good. The Switchblade looks pretty good. That said, you know, and I get it. I think that they're, 
I think that if you have a bag to carry around that chin bar in, I could see this coming in really handy. Yeah, or a camelback that you're throwing it on, you know, whatever. Yeah, whatever you're doing there. I could see it coming in handy, but I don't think that a helmet with a void in it is going to be as structurally sound as one without a void. Yeah. I don't know. That's just my, my thought. Totally. No, I, I, I don't know how you could argue that, but because basically like, let's say that void is made more strong than out, then that creates basically a strength point in that helmet, which then passes on excess stress to the surrounding part of the helmet. Yeah. So are you going to beef everything up? Like it's, it's just, it's a little tricky. So, um, but, but I don't, I don't say that to imply that they're unsafe. No, no. I'm just saying that, um, thinking of it from just a, a theoretical standpoint, diminishing gains. Yeah. 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 That's what I'm thinking there. So totally. Uh, this one's from Trevor. He says, Hey, all love the show. Spent a while trying to find a good MTB podcast and you guys are the truth. We're the truth, Steven. Good. Nice. He says, I have a 2016 KTM Lycan 274. Besides putting a bigger fork on it, I love it. He says, I was just wondering what your take on the KTM line is. Just not a lot of buzz out there. And I was wondering why. Thanks, Trevor from Ruidoso, New Mexico. From Noisy, Mexico. That's what Ruidoso means. It means noisy? Noisy, yeah. Ah. It's from a noisy place. Interesting. Yes. I wonder if it's windy there <laughs> Quite or what the noise is from. <laughs> Crickets. Um, so let's, uh, I, Lots the KTM metal bands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. Uh, the KTM line. So first of all, uh, we have some personal insight into this, uh, mm-hmm. because, uh, we know Trevor Derouze, who's the marketing manager, I believe Trevor, your, your, your title may have changed. I don't Isn't know. Isn't he like CEO now or something or I don't know, something big? He's something big. He moved up recently. Yes. Uh, wearing big shoes over there. He so, is. Uh, he's, he's from the Reno area and I believe he's the marketing manager. I could be wrong. Uh, but anyways, he is running things over here on the marketing side for the U S at least yeah. last I heard. So, uh, that brand it's, it's yes, it's the same brand as KTM motorcycles. However, it is a separate company. It is wholly owned, completely different, but yeah, still based out of Austria. Yes. Um, and they are manufactured. So, so Trevor's told me that they're manufactured in Austria. Um, the higher end stuff, yes. the higher end stuff, I think maybe I, I would assume that the lower end stuff is manufactured in Asia. It's all their flagship models that are built. It's still in Australia. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and honestly that or Austria, did I say Australia? Yeah, put them in Austria on the Bobby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I watched that movie the other night, by the way. <laughs> good times. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they spec them pretty well. They yeah. put on good stuff. KTM, uh, has a lot of like house branded parts, which I assume they probably don't manufacture in Austria, but I think a lot of their parts, their house branded stuff is made by Richie, if I'm not that mistaken. And I could be totally wrong, but I think a lot of their high end stuff comes with like the Richie WSC stuff. Okay. Um, and then Which the is lower good. end stuff is, is still Richie, but I think it's branded KTM. So I'm not sure though. That's pretty cool. So, yeah. I mean, Richie makes good stuff. Yeah. They're good bikes. Um, and I think that, uh, a lot of people look at them kind of like, uh, it's almost like when you see a Kawasaki bicycle in Walmart and yeah. that's not the case. No, not at all. Not at all. The, no. the one thing that I don't like, they just announced their new, um, enduro bike, which looks a lot like the Specialized Enduro, by the way, right? It looks like a Specialized Enduro or a uh, Cannondale Scalpel. It's yeah, it the does. same design. Yeah. The one thing I don't like about it is they put a small inline shock on it. How yeah, do they plan? Yeah. How do they? I just don't understand that. That doesn't make sense to me as far as the volumes of the shock. You need more oil on an Enduro shock. You need more there. You're going to overheat that inline shock. Maybe they'll end up switching it out. And they might. Yeah. I could see, yeah, yeah, I could see them switching it out because the piggyback shock on that bike would be good too. Yeah, DPX2 you know, would be great on it or Float X2 even. 
Yeah. It's a really good looking bike. No, it is. That it's new a very one? good looking bike. Their road bikes have always interested me. They're just something about the lines on the frames, you clean. know, and this is all aesthetics that I'm talking. Right. Um, they're just super clean. And when Trevor was in Reno, um, I was his bike mechanic. So I did a lot of, of work on um, all of his bikes and they were just always good looking bikes. They were yeah, always clean. lighter than a lot of other bikes out there. Yeah. Um, and I think that they do with them doing the direct to consumer, it allows you to get a better bike for a cheaper price sometimes. So yeah. um, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, they're good bikes. Um, yeah. And in KTM on the moto side, if anybody likes dirt bikes, you better be buying KTM stuff just to show your gratitude. Because if KTM wasn't in there, I don't know what would happen to that sport. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So uh, anyways, uh, Jeff, he says, awesome podcast, five stars, review submitted. Thank you very much, Jeff. You're great. Uh, I award you human of the day for your reward. You're a nice lady, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) Great, great broad there. Yeah. He says, I discovered it during a cross country drive from Virginia to California. Now I'm going back to the older episodes. As I mentioned, I just moved from Virginia to the Bay Area and had a few questions for you too. I've been riding in Virginia for 10 plus years and I'm used to some moderate climbs and semi-technical single track. Any recommendations for riding out here in Northern California? I bet Jeff is just going, dear me, what happened to moisture, right? Yeah. <laughs> Dirt is just like concrete that crumbles up, yep. right? He says, uh, I ride a Scott Genius 29er and was wondering if you had any bike setup advice, tires, suspension, maintenance, et cetera. The Genius is pretty hands-free in terms of maintenance. You know, it's not anything that's like a particularly has higher demands than another bike. Absolutely. Um, I, I, depending on if you have the brand, the new Genius, I think it's the new Genius is a slightly different design. I can't remember. Um, But uh, if you're running those bikes, usually from what I've heard, they tend to be pretty progressive. So, uh, and so you just want to make sure that you're, servicing your shock pretty regularly there. Yeah. Um, so he says, uh, I've noticed in the dry conditions, I lose traction on my rear tire more. Should I be running different tire or maybe lower shock pressure? Or if nothing else, do you have any recommendations on places to ride in or around the Bay area? Keep up the great work. What do you think about breaking in NorCal concrete that gets blown out? Well, I mean, it's a suggestion at best, you know, being able to <laughs> so break the, the, okay, so yeah. the concept of breaking <laughs> is a suggestion. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> honestly, Jeff, I need to know what tires you run. I need to know. There's a lot more to this. Um, I think that if you if you soften your compression, um, you know, speed your com- sorry, lighten your compression up, speed up your rebound a little bit. Um, that's going to help a little bit with traction on the dry stuff. Uh, but we really need to know what tires you're running and what pressure you're running to understand um, more about the braking capabilities of your genius. Um, chances are they're probably Maxxis tires if that's what you know came on the bike. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you on the on the bike setup side other than that. The one thing I would say that I find a lot of people like, you know, if your tires are bald, that's one thing. Yeah. But I find a lot of people, uh, they blame the tire for braking performance when honestly braking so much of it is body English and technique. Yeah. And placing your weight appropriately and making sure that you really transfer weight down through to the tires when you are braking. Yeah. And creating the proper, you know, the, the contact patch through tire pressure. Yeah. There's, there's more to it than just the tread and the casing and the compound. Yeah. But the one thing I would look for is if you're running something with like really heavily ramped center knobs, then chances are you're going to have decreased braking. Absolutely. Uh, siping can help with that braking traction, uh, horizontal sipes. We're not talking, uh, or ones that cut across the, the, you know, perpendicular on the tire. Those are the ones that you would want uh, you wouldn't want vertical ones. Uh, yeah. That wouldn't necessarily do you much good there. Yeah. Um, but that's, uh, that's what I would recommend. I think, you know, and one thing I want to say, um, the, the Maxxis Griffin had just come out or mm, has just come mm-hmm. out. I've put 
four or five sets on different people's bikes and everybody is raving about those tires. People are loving it. I think They're, that's the tire that uh, Jesse Melamed runs. I don't know. I think he, he like exclusively runs that. Okay. I mean, amazing, you know, all around trail XC tire. It apparently just is a game changer for a lot of people. Yeah. He's so. been running, I think on Enduro stuff. Yeah. It's pretty gnarly. Yep. Uh, then, uh, we got, we asked, uh, Brian Kennedy, BKXE, check out his YouTube channel. If you haven't saw some stuff, he's a good human. Yeah. He's been a guest on the podcast. Uh, I asked him because he lives in the Bay area, what his favorite area was to ride. And he said the Anadel loop in Santa Rosa is overall the best ride. Anadel state park is awesome. Yeah. It's a really cool place. He said I've got friends that are local. So it's on MTB projects. Yep. So you can check it out there. Yeah. Chad, he says, Hi, I was buying an extra power lock to carry in the case of a broken chain and saw that the packaging says one time use only. I thought back to the episode where Steven said he keeps two chains, two chains. That's what you do, right? You yeah, keep the wrapper chains. around with you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he says he keeps two chains for each bike and switches them out after each ride or after a ride. How are you reattaching the chains? If this power lock is a one time use only deal, uh, do you replace the power lock each time or is it cool to reuse them? So since I'm on the bird now, the bird, I, I don't, being the eagle. Being the eagle. <laughs> yeah. I don't actually take my chain off anymore. Yeah. Um, on the old 11-speed stuff, I used to be able to get like 8 to 10 uses out of each power link, and then they would just start to be really soft, and I would throw them away. Yeah. Um, granted, SRAM sent me like a bag of 30 of them once, so... Uh, had a lot of them. Had, I had a lot of them, so I didn't really care. <laughs> yeah. But at, you know, I think cost on them is two ninety five a piece. Right. So they're f rather expensive. So yeah. for most people... Um, no, and, and no, the, the 11 speeds are not one-time use in my opinion. Yeah. The 12 speed. Absolutely. You lock that thing into place. The next time you break it, it won't go back together no, at all. So doesn't want to. yeah. So if you're on Eagle, it is definitely one-time use. I'd say that the 11 speed and 10 speed are safe for, I don't know, four or five times. Yeah. So yeah. And, and, and it's, you'll see, I think, uh, KMC, I believe. Uh, no, Whip Whipperman. Whipperman. Whipperman is the one that, that has a the, reusable one. Yes. However, I've ran a Whipperman link on my thing on my on a SRAM chain. Yeah. It was the PCXX one, yeah. the higher end chain, mm -hmm. and it and it the link broke. Oh, okay. So I personally would never run a Whipperman. Yeah. Link on that chain at least. Yeah. I've had bad experiences. There you go. So yeah, and and honestly, like uh, it also depends on how you're taking this thing apart and putting it on. Uh, you have to, I would really recommend having a, uh, a quick link removal tool that yeah. basically squeezes the, the two parts together. So yeah. You park tool makes one. Pedro's makes one. Yeah. They're pretty cheap. Yeah. Get one of those and then make sure that you're popping it on properly per the instructions. You basically put it into position, run it up to the top. So it's in between the top of the chain ring and then the top of the cassette. And then you apply force to the pedals and it should not be much force at all. You'll hear it thunk and you'll feel it thunk. Okay. Or you can use the, the park tool actually has an installer. There like it are. works for removing and installing it. Yep. So that's what I would recommend there. Yeah. Ty, he says, hey guys, let me start by saying I love the podcast and being a bike nerd, I appreciate the level of detail that you guys go into on various subjects. Not bad for people with questionable credibility, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Questionable. There was a review that was left there. Um, he says, uh, after listening to the last episode, I wanted to say that I completely agree with the episode's anti-tip. Being a member of the tribe, I recently replaced my Navi next with a pair of 2.4 Ardents, since that's the model of tire that ships on my SB5. I assumed it would suit my needs fine as the do-it-all trail tires, Maxis states on their website. Boy, was I wrong. My front tire washed out so many times that I began to lose confidence in my riding ability. Needless to say, the party time was over. 
I have since relegated uh, it to a back tire only. Now I have a spare and put a minion DHF 2.5 on the front and party time has been restored. <laughs> Good yeah. to know. Yeah. Well, party's back. Yeah. It if says, you don't, if you don't want the DHF, by the way, you can put the Griffin on just mm. throwing it out there again. Yeah. It's a front tire. Yes. He says, cheers, Ty Workman. And um, I wanted to mention something. I talked to the, uh, I went by the Maxis booth at Interbike. And, uh, one of the guys went up to me and said, Hey, you're you, trainer road on my shirt. He's like, you guys must be the ones behind the podcast. And I'm thinking trainer road podcast. I'm like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he's like, yeah, man, where's Steven? I love you, how you guys go into the detail. And I was like, Oh, you mean that podcast? <laughs> oh, that one, <laughs> that different yeah. one. Um, so we talked for a while and he actually mentioned the fact he's like, yeah, I even, you know, I even enjoyed Steven's anti-tip that he had, which is, and I was <laughs> which like, is the Arden. Yeah, the Arden. And I was like, ooh, this is uh, comfortable. And I said, and I said, yeah, I mean, honestly, as a front tire, the thing's terrible. Yeah. And he was like, he was like, I get it, man. I get it. And I said, as a rear tire, it's not, it's not bad. Like you can get used to it and it has its niche, but I wouldn't call it a necessarily like great performing tire as much as a fun tire in the rear. Okay. Cause it has that drift zone, but I wanted to talk about drift zones really quick okay. on tires. Go ahead. Basically what causes that is a, is a gap between the center knobs and the side knob or in the shoulders. So knob. it's a lack of traction when you're transferring from riding in a vertical position on the center patches out to the cornering knobs. Yeah. Which is generally terrifying. Yeah. That said, there are semi-slick tires. And a lot of semi-slick tires uh, have actually an intentional gap that they'll have there. Yeah. They'll have small knobs and then big old shoulder knobs. Yeah. Like the think Minion SS. Yeah. Um, and something on a smaller scale, a WTB Riddler. Yes. Right? I, I think that... Now, I do think that on a front tire on a mountain bike, that's a bad idea mm -hmm. in almost every situation. But as a rear tire, it's not necessarily bad. And as a cross tire, it's actually kind of good. Absolutely. Having that drift zone on grass, for example, and I know we're talking cross here, so I'm sorry, people, but having that drift zone on grass is actually pretty good. You know, you don't need to apologize about that. We went over this in episode one. This is true. That we were going to talk about cross All right. and gravel. No apologies. Yeah. Gall darn it. Yeah. Okay. So I found that at Cross Vegas, uh, racing that this past week. I had to get used to it for a bit because I was running the Riddlers and I used to, I ran the cross boss last year. So I had fantastic traction at all spots, Yeah, but it didn't roll as fast, nearly as fast as the Riddlers. The Riddlers roll really quickly. Yeah. I found that it was a little unnerving at first because I would just drift like crazy coming into every turn. But then if I could get leaned over far enough, I would lock into those side knobs Yep, and then I'd be on rails. So I just had to get comfortable with the point that every turn I went into, I had to be okay with drifting in and then catching. Yeah. So you can get used to riding these, these tires and, and drift zones can be designed intentionally. Yes. But that said, they also definitely have a downside to them, which we obviously just covered. So, and understand this, um, when you think about a tire, think about the turning radius of a tire, the further mm -hmm. you kick it over onto the side, the tighter your turning radius can be. Mm, that's so, a good point. so that's, that's another reason why they would do something like that, have that drift zone. And then the further you get into it, tighter turn radius. Is go. that why, uh, BF Goodrich KO2s have like tread that wrap all the way around to your center lugs? No, that's just because those are stupid tires. <laughs> <laughs> sorry for, <laughs> sorry for nerding out. Sorry. Hard I'm a Toyo guy. Uh, Chappie says, not sure if it's been asked yet, but what are your thoughts on oval chain rings? If it makes a weak spot in your pedal stroke easier, isn't it that, isn't that just making the weak muscles weaker? Thanks. Uh, so let's cover that one really quick. No, it's not. Mm -mm. And think about this, what you're really doing at different parts of the pedal stroke is it's not like you're completely not working one set of muscles in one part and then completely working another, you know, yeah. and then that switches off. You're using your muscles in different ways. 
that allows them to work at different efficiencies. Yes. So basically muscle recruitment patterns and, and how you're using them. So uh, your muscles, yes, when we're talking about like the, the, the point is you're, you're just building, when you go through a pedal stroke, so actually let me step back. I, I don't buy any of the marketing around oval chain rings that claims that it's more efficient for your body. I think we've covered this before. Yes, many times. But I don't buy that. Mm -hmm. I think that's silly. Uh, I think that your body is going to operate how it operates. Yep. But I do think that it helps with delivering more even torque through the rear wheel. Yes. Um, and then that also generally creates less pedal bob. So that's the benefits on mountain biking. So more traction, less pedal bob. That said, it's not about making your weak muscles weaker and then your strong muscles stronger. It's about utilizing the efficiency that you have at certain points of the pedal stroke and then taking that stress and placing it there and then removing a bit of that stress when your muscles simply are less efficient at being able to put out or your body is less efficient at being able to put out power. So it's not necessarily making strong things strong and weak things weak. All it's doing is just adapting to the fact that this is how, you know, this is how it's going to work. Yeah. You simply can't put out as much torque pulling up. Yeah. You I'm sorry. Your, your hamstrings are not as way. big as your calves. Yeah. 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 Now that said, I think that you, know, you can change the position of your oval and I think that your body's going to adapt to it. Yeah. Uh, it's going to adapt and put out power where it does. And, and within reason. And technically biopace was actually originally did what you're thinking an oval chain ring does. Yes. Where you have more muscle, it creates a bigger chain ring. And so, or no, the or, opposite. Sorry, biopace is the opposite. Is the opposite. Yeah. Where you had more, yeah. they basically tried to make it easier. So that way it felt easy. Yeah. And then when you had less, that's where it, it got really in. hard. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yep. Um, so then his next question, he says, I'm looking to start riding on a trainer, but I'm not interested in trying to fit a 29er mountain bike to a trainer. Would I be better off on price and ease to set up trying to get an old used road bike solely for use on a trainer? Yeah. Yep. Cause you're just going to sit in one gear anyway. So who cares if it's a nine speed, you know, setup? Just yeah. If you're on a smart trainer. Yeah. yeah. Just get yeah. something older and be done with it. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. If, if you're on a smart trainer, then yeah, you can just stay in one gear and you can run whatever, uh, as long as you can put the cassette on the smart trainer. If it's a wheel off design, I should say. Um, if you're, it's a standard trainer, then yeah. And, and it still will be easy to do. Uh, it's not a, not a problem. I mean, don't get something old with like frame tab mounted friction shifters, but yeah, get something older. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. And if they are, then just take those shifters off, then carry the cables in your teeth. And that's how you can shift. There you go. <laughs> your dentist will thank you later. Yes. Uh, next one is from I ride a salsa. We just have two more left. He says, Hey guys, huge fan of the podcast. I have a five-star rating going up as soon as you, as you answer this question and comment hostage situation. That's very intense there. He says, first of all, being an avid bass fisherman, I know a lot about Shimano reels. They are very technologically advanced. Some even have a digital chip in them to help you throw the bait. Whoa. He says, that being said, the type of people that use Shimano would most definitely be a pretentious roadie that thinks everything he or she does is better than everyone else. I hate those Shimano guys. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he says, that being said, I do actually have a question. I have a salsa timberjack, all mountain hardtail. Yeah, I, it makes sense. You're a fly fisherman, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> there was a social commentary. <laughs> we love you, I ride a salsa, but yes. it totally fits. Yeah, yeah, yeah it totally fits. Um, I like that vibe. He says, uh, it's an all mountain hardtail. Which actually is a sweet bike. Yeah, it is. I've replaced the SRAM NX1, NX1 11-speed rear derailleur or derailleur with Shimano XT stuff. I just had a few set, or a new set of wheels built up, WTB ASIM laced to Hope Pro 4 hubs. That's a pretty sweet setup. Yeah. And he says, I swapped the rear wheel dropouts to through axle, but the front is still QR. 
Should I upgrade from the Manitou M30 fork to something in the in the 130 range of the through axle? Thanks in advance, guys. Love the show. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. That'll yes. create so much more stiffness on that bike. Oh, it'll be so much better. Yeah. Um, I'd recommend you can find like pikes in 130. That could be sweet. Yeah. Uh, 34 in 130. If yeah. You can find that Fox 34. The new fo- the new Fox stuff with the Evol is made that big difference nowadays. Oh, so yeah. yeah, something like that would be awesome. Can I can I kind of hint at something that may or may not be happening? Yeah, you can do whatever you need to do. <laughs> there there may or may not. I can't confirm or deny a new 34 coming out. Yeah, I know that. That's not news. But it's got some interesting stuff okay. to it. Okay. XC guys will be happy. Okay. I'll just leave it there. Okay. Is that okay? I'm fine with that. I'm not breaking any rules now, right? I don't think so. Okay, good. Okay. I'll call the guys at Fox and make sure they're not going to fire you. But <laughs> Fire me? I'm on payroll? No. No, okay. I'm just, okay, gotcha. I can just You're be fired, fired, but you can't quit. <laughs> gotcha, yeah. Um, I, I've been pretty critical of Fox. If I'm on payroll, I'm, I'm a pretty bad employee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, he says, okay, cave and biker quick question regarding my monarch rock shocks, monarch plus RC three last ride out. I started getting a bad clunk out of my shock after a particularly, he says in quotes, fun section of trail. Nice. Yes. It was mostly noticeable with the three position lever and fully open mode in the middle or firm mode. I couldn't really feel it. I'm sending my shock into rock shocks. You should have sent it to SRAMD. Yeah. You should have sent it to, uh. Yeah. Yeah. Squish dynamics. Dynamics, man. Super fast turnaround, really helpful, kind humans that do incredible work. Yep. He says, I'm sending my, uh, my shock into rock shocks for warranty, but I wondered if you might add, might address what the problem might be and what might've caused it. The shock is new this year and has roughly 60 hours on it. I looked up rock shock service and interval recommendations and they say a hundred hours or so. So I'm well under the mark there. Hoping for a little insight here and maybe what I can do to prevent this in the future. You know, I'm actually not super familiar with the internals of the, of the Monarch plus RC3. Um, that's. What could cause knocking like that in the open? You could have some serious damper issues. You could have overheated and boiled your fluid and got some air in there. Mm-hmm. Um, That's what I was thinking. And so when it separates and you get the air bubbles, then you're going to get a hard clunk as the air passes through an orifice and then the oil hits that orifice. Mm-hmm. You'll get a clunk. Um, that's probably what happened. And that's what sounds like to me. Mm-hmm. But I don't know in particular on that shock. It might be something else. Yeah. You know, I think that you... Um, it sounds like your bike probably isn't metric because you've got the Monarch on there instead of the Super Deluxe. But you do have a piggyback, piggyback reservoir if it's the Monarch Plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to think of things that he could do to, to cool that sucker off. Um, man. Put a know. Vivid Air debonair on it. Yeah. There we are. <laughs> yeah. That'll, that'll cool things off. That'll really cool things off. Yeah. Um, that thing would be pretty gnarly. That's a, that's an option. So hopefully that helps. Steven, that was a lot of questions. That was a ton. We're going to close things out with a quick discussion on Interbike with the business. Business time. It's business time. All right, so I went to Interbike again. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was the th- or maybe fourth year for me, third year for me. Okay, I think, yeah, I think the third year. Uh, so, and and holy cow, is it a different show than what it was three years ago? Explain. I'm not sure if it's better. Explain. Uh, so, okay, <laughs> I like this. This is yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Call it, me Anderson Cooper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look just like him, by the, the way. The brown fox, yeah. not the silver fox. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, it is empty, man. Mm-hmm. Like empty. Kay. Less exhibitors. Yep. Uh, decidedly less people. Three years ago, man, or maybe was it four years ago? I can't remember. 
it genuinely took me to get from one side of the expo. It's a big expo to get from one side to the other. It took me over an hour. And that was because just so many humans, it was just out of control. So many humans. You've clearly never been to SEMA in Vegas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have been to CES, which is insane. Oh yeah. That's like yeah. massive too. Um, but this Interbike used to put CES to shame in terms of humans per square something. It was yeah. just insane. Like per square so measurement of area. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so many. And it was really tough to get through and everybody was there. Like every brand, right? Mm -hmm. Brands have been trickling off every year, not coming, either doing their own thing or just not recognizing the value of Interbike because you've got Eurobike before that, or you've got Sea Otter even before that. Yeah. Or we've got Sedona Mountain Bike Festival or, you know, plenty of other things. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's a shell of the show it once was. Absolutely. I don't know if everybody noticed listening to this, but hardly any products that were actually like, I don't even, I can't think of a single impactful product that was announced at Interbike. No. And that's, I mean, what Interbike has really become is for the North American people to put their eyes and hands in person on the things that were announced at, and shown at Eurobike. Yeah. That's really what it turned into. And let's cover who the people are because originally Interbike was supposed to connect or bring dealers. So dealers could come talk to brands, mm -hmm. see the product, place orders. Exactly. Set your pre-seasons, get all that mm -hmm. done, learn about the product, all of that. There was a huge decrease in the number of people that I saw from bike shops this year. Yeah. As a bike shop owner, why would I, can you tell me why that's happening? Why aren't they going? I don't know. I mean, it's expensive. Yeah. And, and the bike shop industry in general, you look at it now, you've got, um, Think of a, a bike shop like Great Basin, the one that, you know, I used to manage. Yeah. What is the benefit for the owner to take time out of working at the shop full time to go to Vegas to see the products that the outside rep is going to bring to the shop anyway? Yeah. Either weeks before or weeks after. Or that you can see online. Or you can see online and understand can, all about the and, product and watch videos and do all of that. Why would you take time out when profitability is so far down in parts, accessories, and bikes themselves? Yeah. The only benefit I see is for, um, you know, a friend of mine, um, Max and Patty Jones, they own Flume Trail Bikes and Tunnel Creek Cafe up in Incline Village. Yep. Every year he goes to Interbike and he has a ton of fun doing it, but he goes there purely to set his pre-seasons for all of his demo fleets, gotcha. Ibis and Specialized. So yep. that's why he goes there is and to set those. And Specialized, if they're there, they just have a few people roaming the floor yeah. and they're there for meetings. Yeah, they're there for, that's exactly. It. They do not have a booth. They do not no. have a setup. They go there bare bones, send people to do the business and that's it. And that's who I saw this year was just industry people. That was like basically it, press and industry people. Yeah. And not a lot of press, a huge decrease in the amount of people that were there. Yeah. Well, that's because everybody's budgets are dry after sending them all to Eurobike. <laughs> exactly. So uh, Interbike is ineffective, I see. It needs to be revamped. There needs to be a big change in how it works. So they change the location to be right here in Reno. Yeah. It will literally be 10 minutes from here. Yeah. From the trainer road office where we're at right now. Yeah. But the thing is, and, and I think that's a huge improvement because I, I don't like Vegas personally. No. Don't, don't love it. Uh, I like cross Vegas. It's a fun race. Mm -hmm. I like the, um, I like the vibe that a lot of people have there. Cause it's a little more carefree perhaps, you know, at Vegas, uh, but also a lot of it, people just turn into jet into de de degenerates as soon as they get there. Mm -hmm. 
but uh, them coming to Reno, if that's their plan to save the show or re-inject something into it, they that's not going to be enough. They yeah. have to do a whole lot more to change it. I, and I think that, you know, moving it to Reno and having Outer Bike at North Star yep. or the outdoor demo. Which is about bike, totally 30 to 40 minutes from Reno. And it's I heard everyone saying that it's like two and a half hours at the show. No, it is not. 40 minutes. Yeah, it's really close. You go up a canyon and you're there. Yeah, that's it. it is far better than bootleg Canyon Oh yeah, for yeah. everybody, because you're going to have every so type many of riding. Options. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's going to help, mm-hmm. but they also, and I don't even know what they need to do, but they need to change the vibe of inner bike and how it's put on and what the focus of that show is. Yeah. You need to get back down to the core product. What is inner bike? Yeah. Is it just a good time for the industry? Is it an opportunity for bike shops to come and place orders? Is it uh, a place for brands to release new products because the eyeballs are there? Yeah, because it hasn't done that in years. No. So, I mean, you have to you have to kind of go back to that. That said, I don't think that it's the bike industry is hurting because Interbike's hurting. No. I think the bike industry is doing great. And, uh, well, relatively speaking. I, I wouldn't yeah. say it's doing great, yeah. but Let's yeah. just say it's it's not being affected by that. Yeah. So the bike industry isn't being affected by inner bike. I think it's the yeah, other way around. Exactly. So anyways, yeah, it's, um, it's kind of an interesting thing to see, uh, kind of a relic of itself. Um, see it dropping down like that, but nothing new. I, the only thing, the things that I saw that were interesting, uh, I wanted to steal the tires off of Vino Schroeder's bike in the SRAM booth, mm-hmm. which was a lot smaller this year. Uh, the SRAM booth, not his bike. His bike is the same size it was last year. Good. <laughs> uh, he didn't drop down to like a strider or anything, but his bike uh, had 170 TPI Maxxis Aspens. Dang. I almost stole them. Mm. I thought, hmm, I wonder if I could just take these tires off here without anybody noticing, and I don't think that would have been possible. No, no. I would have stolen them. I, I, Duncan I Riffle done. might have chased you down or something. Yeah. I did talk to Duncan. Okay. Yeah, and uh, he's a very pleasant guy. Yeah. So oh, He's always so. been, yeah. Yeah. yeah Power his tattoos. Uh, established. Good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Google it guys. Just yeah. Google he's it. an awesome guy though. Uh, and he's going to be racing up here at Grindr coming up soon. So oh, sweet. Good stuff. Uh, anyways, uh, I didn't see anything interesting at Interbike in terms of products though. Those no. tires. Other than 170 yeah, TPI. I just want, one, sure I just like want 170 TPI uh, Aspens. So yeah. Maxis, if you're listening, I don't know how you can make these available to consumers, but if you can, We'll pay it. Or We're just st- us, you know, just give them to us. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. Um, but man, we'll pay it. People will pay for the 170 TPI tires. Yeah, we already pay $90 for tires. And What's we'll another pay, 30? We'll pay plenty more for 170 TPI. We'll just yeah. put them on race wheels, right? Like, yeah. please do it. Yeah. So, uh, Stephen, with that, let's close it out with the tips. Okie doke. You don't care they'd count on your tips to live? Uh, Steven, do you want to kick it off with yours? I do. Cool. Go ahead. Um, so this weekend, if you guys saw on, on the Instagrams, um, I did a, it was just, it, it wasn't a race. It was just a fondo mm-hmm. and a fondue, a, a fondue, Ooh. <laughs> a cheese, not chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, the, the bear growl century is a brand new bike festival that they're going to be building out of um north of quincy north of quincy it's about 100 miles from reno in this little town called taylorsville Mm -hmm. and we did a 58 mile gravel grind they had a 97 as well and then they had a 39 and then they had all sorts of road riding so the route was phenomenal it was gorgeous it was beautiful the super x just handled it all perfectly i had a great time my knee was great i didn't have any issues other than you know just from riding a bike for five hours it was you know painful um 
took us up around Antelope Lake, which I haven't been to since I was a kid. And then, you know, took us all over in the wilderness up in, you know, northern Plumas County. And it's, so it's basically just north of Mount Huff and Downeyville and Gray Eagle and all that. Yeah, yeah. Just a phenomenal ride. Great organizational, you know, the, the way it was put together. You ended in town at a tavern, um, oh, which is right next to the general store. I mean, it's, it Small is a town. tiny little town. And they put together a really awesome taco bar. The I mean, it was just really well supported, really awesome route. Everything about it was great. And there was only about 125 people who did it total. And I ended up yeah. doing it with a bunch of friends and we all did the gravel. Sweet. Right. There was a lot of people on hardtail mountain bikes, a few people on um, full suspensions, and then a lot of gravel bikes. Yeah. So you can do it on anything. Yeah. But the cool thing about this event was, is that it's going to grow. It's going to get bigger. It was so well put together nice. that... I think it's, I mean, naturally it's just going to grow. That'll be cool. And the cool thing is you come to that one, you do that ride. And then all in that region, like you mentioned, there's incredible riding. Yeah. It's super close to Downeyville, it's, close to Gray Eagle. It's right where the, it's near where the lost and found gravel grinder goes. In fact, and we were Grinduro. On, and where the Grinduro is. In fact, in Grinduro, we passed through Taylorsville. Yeah. So on the Grinduro, the segment, I think it's segment five of uh -huh. the Grinduro uh -huh. is actually, we rode that. Oh, cool. As our route. So... Um, it's just a really cool, fun weekend, um, that I think everybody should go do. Nice. Yeah. I, I, I hope you never mention Mount Huff again on this podcast. Cause I don't want people to really know about that trail. Why did you say it again? Uh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's a terrible trail. Never go ride it yeah. ever. It's, it's like a sidewalk. Yeah. You would hate it if you rode there. There's like tourists everywhere taking pictures it's and things. It's terrible. There's yeah. bears. Yeah. Big bears. Yeah. <laughs> Poop all over the place and they eat you. <laughs> Uh, if you didn't catch the sarcasm there, uh, my, the tip that I have is, uh, it has to be slightly ambiguous, but it's okay because soon enough there will be a news release on this and, and it won't seem, and you'll know what I'm talking about, but there's a new action camera that I just spent two days with testing mm -hmm. from a company that may sound like shmur shmro, something like that. Shmo bro? Shmur shmro, something like yeah. that. Okay. Uh, can't confirm or deny that actually may okay. or may not. Um, okay. and it is a massive step up. So it's a thing. It's a, so it'd it's be a, a new generation of a camera. Yep. Okay. So an yeah. action camera. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Really good action camera. Um, and on paper, it may not seem as impressive as it actually is in utilization. Mm -hmm. I'm thoroughly impressed with a company that I've been pretty disappointed with for a while. Just remember, not all heroes wear capes. Uh -huh, I see what you're doing there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's a it's and it was a, I was impressed okay. shooting in. So using this thing on cable cams, using it on gimbals, using it on just hard mounts on handlebars, using it on everything like that. Just massive, massive improvement in low light shooting directly into a setting sun. It still maintained detail throughout the whole frame. Nothing was blown out. Nope. Wow. Like the sky was accurately, you know, it was it was a, a, a hot spot of, of exposure, and then but, but the ground wasn't that, blacked out. Yeah. Interesting. Really impressed, and uh, 4K at 60, which is awesome. Dang. So 4K 60 frames a second, and that's gotta take so, some. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, very impressive. Okay. So battery life, uh, the battery life was just a little, I feel like it was a little less than the previous generation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can say that. Okay. Microphone seems to be the same, which is a bummer. 
because I was hoping that would be improved. Okay. But it still works with all the gimbals that you would buy for this action camera Mm -hmm. that, you know, may or may not be well, very well known or not. Mm-hmm. So or not, yeah, <laughs> or not. Anyways, I like how ambiguously direct we were with all of that. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really good. Yeah, it is really good. So if you are holding out for an action camera, this is one to definitely put your eye on. Mm-hmm. Coming or up is soon. it six to put your eye on? Oh, yeah, could be six to okay. put your eye on. Yeah, good okay. point. Yeah. yeah. All right, You're very good with those, Stephen. <laughs> Uh, with that, let's finish this one up. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. You can submit your questions at mtbpodcast.com. You can buy stuff on there and let us know once again what you would like to see from us in terms of specialized content uh, or unique content. Let's say that. We can't say specialized because it Yeah, we don't want to get sued. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unique content uh, or whatever else that you would want to see us provide for you guys. It's something like Sedona Mountain Bike Festival. Yeah. And we'll start planning that sucker. It would be cool to ride with you all there. It would be. Thanks, everybody. Have a killer week of riding. Have a nice day. Hey, guys. Jonathan here. Just wanted to thank you again for listening and let you know that if you like the song that you're hearing now and the one that you heard in the intro, it comes from Wave Riders Entertainment, my good friend Tommy Walter. Check it out if you're looking for more beats like this or some awesome tracks to listen to. We'll talk to you next week. You know who Phil is, right? No. Guy with no arms and no legs at the bottom of a hole. <laughs> That's pretty bad. Dude, I, all of those jokes. I know all of them. Sandy, blonde lady with no arms and no legs sitting on the beach. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs>